Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 129. The Cabin. Ahab, moving to go on deck. Pip catches him by the hand to follow. Lad, lad, I tell thee, thou must not follow Ahab now. The hour is coming when Ahab would not scare thee from him, yet would not have thee by him. There is in that thee, poor lad, which I feel too curing to my malady. Like cures like, and for this hunt my malady becomes my most desired health. Do thou abide below here, where they shall serve thee, as if thou wert the captain. Ay, lad, thou shalt sit here in my own screwed chair. Another screw to it, thou must be. No, 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 ye have not a whole body, sir. Do ye but use poor me for your one lost leg. Only tread upon me, sir, I ask no more, so I remain a part of ye. Oh, spite of million villains, this makes me a bigot in the fadeless fidelity of man. But methinks like cures like applies to him too. He grows so sane again. They tell me, sir, that Stubb did once desert poor little Pip, whose drowned bones now show white for all the blackness of his living skin. But I will never desert ye, sir, as Stubb did me. Sir, I must go with ye. If thou speakest thus to me much more, Ahab's purpose keels up in him. I tell thee no, it cannot be. O good master, master, master! Weep so, and I will murder thee. Have a care, for Ahab too is mad. Listen, and thou wilt often hear my ivory foot upon the deck, and still know that I am there. And now I quiet thee. Thy hand... Met, true art thou, lad, as the circumference to its center. So, God forever bless thee, and if it come to that, God forever save thee. Let what will befall. Ahab goes. Pip steps one step forward. Here he this instant stood. I stand in his air, but I'm alone. Now were even poor Pip here, I could endure it, but he's missing. Pip, Pip, ding, dong, ding, who's seen Pip? He must be up here. Let's try the door. What? Neither lock nor bolt nor bar, and that there's no opening it. It must be the spell. He told me to stay here. Aye, and told me the screwed chair was mine. Here, then, I'll seat me against the transom in the ship's full middle, all her keel and her three masts before me. Here, our old sailors say, in their black seventy-fours, great admirals sometimes sit at table, 
and lorded over rows of captains and lieutenants. Ha! What's this? Epaulets. Epaulets. The epaulets all come crowding. Passed round the decanters. Glad to see ye. Fill up, monsieur. What an odd feeling now, when a black boy's host to white men with gold lace upon their coats. Monsieurs, have you seen one pip, a little lad, five feet high, hangdog look, and cowardly, jumped from a whaleboat once? Seen him? No. Well, then fill up again, captains, and let's drink shame upon all cowards. I name no names. Shame upon them. Put one foot upon the table. Shame upon all cowards. Hist. Above there, I hear ivory. Oh, master, master, I am indeed downhearted when you walk over me. But here I'll stay. Though the stern strikes rocks, and they bulge through, and oysters come to join me. Chapter 130 The Hat And now that at the proper time and place, after so long and wide a preliminary cruise, Ahab, and all other wailing waters swept, seemed to have chased his foe into an ocean fold, to slay him the more securely there. Now that he had found himself hard by the very latitude and longitude where his tormenting wound had been inflicted, now that a vessel had been spoken which, on the very day preceding, had actually encountered Moby Dick, and now that all his successive meetings with various ships contrastingly concurred to show the demonic indifference with which the white whale tore his hunters, whether sinning or sinned against, now it was that there lurked a something in the old man's eyes which it was hardly sufferable for feeble souls to see. As the unsettling polar star, which through the live-long, arctic, six-months night sustains its piercing, steady, central gaze, so Ahab's purpose now fixedly gleamed down upon the constant midnight of the gloomy crew. It domineered above them so that all their bodings, doubts, misgivings, fears, were fain to hide beneath their souls and not sprout forth a single spear or leaf. In this foreshadowing interval, too, all humor, forced or natural, vanished. Stubb no more strove to raise a smile. Starbuck no more strove to check one. Alike, joy and sorrow, hope and fear, seemed ground to finest dust, and powdered for the time in the clamped mortar of Ahab's iron soul. Like machines, they dumbly moved about the deck, ever conscious that the old man's despot eye was on them. But did you deeply scan him in his more secret confidential hours, when he thought no glance but one was on him? Then you would have seen that even as Ahab's eyes so awed the crew's, the inscrutable Parsi's glance awed his, or somehow at least, in some wild way, at times affected it. Such an added, gliding strangeness began to invest the thin Fidala now. Such ceaseless shuddering shook him that the men looked dubious at him. Half uncertain as it seemed, whether indeed he were a mortal substance, or else a tremulous shadow cast upon the deck by some unseen being's body. 
and that shadow was always hovering there. For not by night even had Fadala ever certainly been known to slumber or go below. He would stand still for hours, but never sat or leaned. His wan but wondrous eyes did plainly say, We two watchmen never rest. Nor, at any time by night or day, could the mariners now step upon the deck, unless Ahab was before them, either standing in his pivot hole or exactly pacing the planks between two undeviating limits, the mainmast and the mizzen. Or else they saw him standing in the cabin scuttle, his living foot advanced upon the deck as if to step. His hat slouched heavily over his eyes, so that however motionless he stood, however the days and nights were added on that he had not swung in his hammock, yet hidden beneath that slouching hat they could never tell unerringly whether, for all this, his eyes were really closed at times, or whether he was still intently scanning them. No matter, though he stood so in the scuttle for a whole hour on the stretch, and the unheeded night damp gathered in beads of dew upon that stone-carved coat and hat. The clothes that the night had wet the next day's sunshine dried upon him, and so day after day and night after night he went no more beneath the planks. Whatever he wanted from the cabin, that thing he sent for. He ate in the same open air, that is, his only two meals, breakfast and dinner. Supper he never touched, nor reaped his beard, which darkly grew all gnarled, as unearthed roots of trees blown over, which still grow idly on at naked base, though perished in the upper verdure. But though his whole life was now become one watch on deck, and though the Parsee's mystic watch was without intermission as his own, yet these two never seemed to speak, one man to the other, unless at long intervals some passing, unmomentous matter made it necessary. Though such a potent spell seemed secretly to join the twain, openly and to the awestruck crew they seemed pulled like asunder, if by day they chanced to speak one word, by night dumb men were both, so far as concerned the slightest verbal interchange. At times, for longest hours, without a single hail, they stood far parted in the starlight, Ahab in his scuttle, the Parsee by the mainmast, but still fixedly gazing upon each other, as if in the Parsee Ahab saw his forethrone shadow, in Ahab the Parsee his abandoned substance. And yet, somehow, did Ahab in his own proper self, as daily, hourly, and every instant, commandingly revealed to his subordinates, Ahab seemed an independent lord, the Parsee but his slave. Still again, both seemed yoked together, and an unseen tyrant driving them, the lean shade siding the solid rib, for be this Parsee what he may all rib and keel with solid Ahab. At the first faint glimmering of the dawn, his iron voice was heard from aft. Man the mastheads! And all through the day till after sunset and after twilight, the same voice every hour at the striking of the helmsman's bell was heard. What do you see? Sharp, sharp! 
But when three or four days had slided by, after meeting the children seeking Rachel, and no spout had yet been seen, the monomaniac old man seemed distrustful of his crew's fidelity, at least of nearly all except the pagan harpooners. He seemed to doubt even whether Stubb and Flask might not willingly overlook the sight he sought. But if these suspicions were really his, he refrained from verbally expressing them, however his actions might seem to hint them. "'I will have the first sight of the whale myself,' he said. "'I, Ahab, must have the doubloom.' And with his own hands he rigged a nest of basketed bowlines, and sending a hand aloft with a single sheaved block to secure to the main masthead, he received the two ends of the downward-reeved rope, and attaching one to his basket, prepared a pin for the other end, in order to fasten it at the rail. This done, with that end part in his hand and standing beside the pin, he looked round upon his crew, sweeping from one to the other, pausing his glance long upon Dagu, Queequeg, Tashtigo, but shunning Fedala. And then, settling his firm, relying eye upon the chief mate, said, "'Take the rope, sir. I give it into thy hands, Starbuck.' Then, arranging his person in the basket, he gave the word for them to hoist him to his perch, Starbuck being the one who secured the rope at last, and afterwards stood near it. And thus, with one hand clinging round the royal mast, Ahab gazed abroad upon the sea for miles and miles, ahead, astern, this side and that, within the wide-expanded circle commanded at so great a height. When in working with his hands at some lofty, almost isolated place in the rigging, which chances to afford no foothold, the sailor at sea is hoisted up to that spot and sustained there by the rope. Under these circumstances, its fastened end on deck is always given in strict charge to some one man who is the special watch of it. Because in such a wilderness of running rigging, whose various different relations aloft cannot always be infallibly discerned by what is seen of them at the deck, and when the deck ends of these ropes are being every few minutes cast down from the fastenings, it would be but a natural fatality if, unprovided with a constant watchman, the hoisted sailor should by some carelessness of the crew be cast adrift and fall all swooping to the sea. So Ahab's proceedings in this matter were not unusual, the only strange thing about them seemed to be that Starbuck, almost the one only man who had ever ventured to oppose him with anything in the slightest degree approaching to decision, one of those two whose faithfulness on the lookout he had seemed to doubt somewhat. It was strange that this was the very man he should select for his watchman, freely giving his whole life into such an otherwise distrusted person's hands. Now, the first time Ahab was perched aloft, ere he had been there ten minutes, one of those red-billed savage seahawks, which so often fly incommodiously close round the manned mastheads of whalemen in these latitudes, one of these birds came wheeling and screaming round his head in a maze of untrackably swift circlings. Then it darted a thousand feet straight up into the air, then spiralized downwards and went eddying again round his head. 
but with his gaze fixed upon the dim and distant horizon, Ahab seemed not to mark this wild bird. Nor, indeed, would any one else have marked it much, it being no uncommon circumstance. Only now, almost the least heedful eye seemed to see some sort of cunning meaning in almost every sight. "'Your hat, your hat, sir!' suddenly cried the Sicilian seaman, who, being posted at the mizzen masthead, stood directly behind Ahab, though somewhat lower than his level and with a deep gulf of air dividing them. But already the sable wing was before the old man's eyes. The long hooked bill at his head, with a scream the black hawk darted away with his prize. An eagle flew thrice round Tarquin's head, removing his cap to replace it, and thereupon his wife declared that Tarquin would be king of Rome. But only by the replacing of the cap was that omen accounted good. Ahab's hat was never restored. The wild hawk flew on and on with it, far in advance of the prow, and at last disappeared, while from the point of that disappearance a minute black spot was dimly discerned, falling from that vast height into the sea. Chapter 131 The Pequod Meets the Delight The intense Pequod sailed on. The rolling waves and days went by. The life-buoy coffin still lightly swung, and another ship, most miserably misnamed the Delight, was seen. As she drew nigh, all eyes were fixed upon her broad beams, called shears, which in some whaling ships cross the quarter-deck at the height of eight or nine feet, serving to carry the spare, unrigged, or disabled boats. Upon the stranger's shears were beheld the shattered white ribs and some few splintered planks of what had once been a whale-boat. But you now saw through this wreck as plainly as you see through the peeled, half-unhinged, and bleaching skeleton of a horse. "'Has seen the white whale!' "'Look!' replied the hollow-cheeked captain from his taffrail, and with his trumpet he pointed to the wreck. "'Has killed him?' "'The harpoon is not yet forged that ever will do that,' answered the other, sadly glancing upon a rounded hammock on the deck, whose gathered sides some noiseless sailors were busy in sewing together. "'Not forged,' and snatching purse-leveled iron from the crotch, Ahab held it out, exclaiming, "'Look ye, Nantucketer, here in this hand I hold his death. Tempered in blood and tempered by lightning are these barbs, and I swear to temper them triply in that hot place behind the fin where the white whale most feels his accursed life.' "'Then God keep thee, old man. "'Seest thou that?' pointing to the hammock. I bury but one of five stout men who were alive only yesterday, but were dead ere night. Only that one I bury. The rest were buried before they died. You sail upon their tomb. Then turning to his crew, Are ye ready there? Place the plank then on the rail and lift the body. So then, O God, advancing towards the hammock with uplifted hands, May the resurrection and the life... Brace forward, up helm, cried Ahab, like lightning to his men. 
but the suddenly started Pequod was not quick enough to escape the sound of the splash that the corpse soon made as it struck the sea. Not so quick indeed, but that some of the flying bubbles might have sprinkled her hull with their ghostly baptism. As Ahab now glided from the dejected delight, the strange life buoy hanging at the Pequod's stern came into conspicuous relief. "'Ha, yonder! Look yonder, men!' cried a foreboding voice in her wake. "'In vain, O ye strangers, ye fly our sad burial. Ye but turn us your taffrail to show us your coffin.'" Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.